Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Justin Tinsley. Justin is a senior writer for ESPN's Anscape, a journalist known for his entertaining probes into the intersections of hip-hop, pop culture, and sports. We discuss his book, It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him, a heavily researched biography of the notorious B.I.G. and the culture and communities that shaped him. Justin has also written sharp commentary on Malcolm X, James Baldwin, Serena Williams, Cardi B, and Nipsey Hussle. Nipsey Hussle was also the subject for his 30 for 30 podcast, The King of Crenshaw. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of this show can be found in the link in the show notes. And remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for June is White Negroes When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation by Lauren Michelle Jackson. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, June 29th with David Dennis Jr. Listen. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast. It is only made possible by the support of our listeners. I cannot stress enough how I would not be able to make this show week in and week out without the support of the Stacks Pack, our incredible bookish community that supports the Stacks on Patreon. If not for them, there would be no show. So if you like this podcast and want to show it some love, plus earn perks for yourself, like our monthly bonus episodes, shout outs on the podcast our book club, and our incredibly lively Discord community full of book recommendations and other non-bookish things, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. Thank you to our newest member of the Stacks Pack, Gunnar Sloan. And thank you to every single member of the Stacks Pack for making this show possible. Okay, now it's time for my chat with Justin Tinsley. All right, everybody. I'm very excited. Today, I am talking to Justin Tinsley. He's the author of the brand new biography of Biggie Smalls called It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. Justin, welcome to the Stacks. I am truly, truly, truly blessed to be here. I am very Uh. excited for this. Oh my gosh, I'm real I this is so great. Okay, we're gonna dive right in. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell people about the book? Well, the book came out on May 10th. It is a part biography of Christopher Wallace, who was, of course, known as the Notorious B.I.G., but it's also a socio-political, socio-cultural, socio-economic examination of the world around him, hence the title Biggie and the World That Made Him. 
Perfect. Okay. We have to start with the most important part of this entire book, which happens on the first page in the second or third sentence, which is, I did not know what B-I-G stood for. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it's people maybe, didn't. It's maybe the most embarrassing thing about Biggie is that it stood for business instead of game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like what? That's what he said in the interview. At least I, I don't think you need to be embarrassed by it because I don't think. A no, lot no. Of I think he needs to be embarrassed by it. <laughs> I don't like think it, so. what? What does it mean? Business instead of game? I, I, I don't guess know. I mean, he was all about his money. I guess you know. I'm I guess about my business instead of playing games. I don't know. He's you know. just like such a prolific poet, wordsmith, and I'm like, that is how you decided to do big. I just, I feel like he could have done better. It was probably early, you know, in his career. It was definitely early. Whatever. Yeah. So like, I'll give him a little credit, but I, when I read that, I was like, oh, I had to go back and read it a few different times because I kept forgetting. <laughs> I was like, I know it's something silly, but I can't remember. Anyways, that's just me joking. Okay. You touched on this before, and I'll just let people know at home. I am not a huge Biggie person. I'm not anti-Biggie. I just right. was not raised listening to Biggie. I'm from California, so I feel like Tupac is sort of the was the go-to person in my life. So I didn't know a lot about his life. Like this book, I I like learned I learned a lot of stuff and some of the things I'm sort of embarrassed that I didn't know. But also I think you and I are about the same age. And so, you know, when Biggie and Pac died, I was 10. Yeah. I wasn't even 11. I think I don't think I'd even turned 11 quite yet um, when, when Biggie died. And so I had heard a lot of the stories, but I didn't really like understand the context. And that's like the thing that really I was taken by in this book was less about the story of Biggie's life and more about how you put him and his life into context. Obviously, that must have been important to you because you do it throughout the book. But can you sort of Tell me how you were thinking about doing that. Like why, what, how that came to you, why you sort of wanted to include all of that in, in this story. Yeah. So once I signed the contract to do the book, and I would say probably around like January 2020, and you know how mm. it is in the book publishing world, you get half of your money up front and then half once you submit the manuscript. Right, right, So right. when I got the first half of that check, I was like, wow, this is the biggest check, the single check that I've ever gotten <laughs> in my life. And I'm like, this is great. Then it hit me. I'm like, well, what the hell do I tell people? Like I say in the book, like, what the hell do I tell people about Biggie Smalls that they don't already know? Because at this point, he's like, mm -hmm. like Tupac, he's like a folk hero. Like, there have been right. countless documentaries and there's been movies and there's been, you know, books written about the conspiracy theories around he and Tupac's death and things of that nature. And I knew I didn't want to do that because mm -hmm. I wanted to more focus on on his life rather than focusing on, you know, the tragic way that he died. Of course, that would be in there. But uh, maybe I would say once I realized that I was going to have to do this entire book in quarantine <laughs> and right. like research, report, interview, outline and write. Uh, when, once I figured that out, I was like, all right, I need a different like entry point into this story. Mm. Well, and while this book is a, a straight up biography in a sense of he was he was born here on this date and he died here on this date. Right. I knew I wanted to make it, I wanted to put his life in context of what was going on in Brooklyn, New York, America, the world at that point in time, because none of our life stories are just about us. We're influenced, we're, we're influenced by the experiences that we have, the decisions that are made within our control and, and even a lot beyond our control. And I felt Biggie's life 
was a perfect microcosm of that. Because if we want to talk about drug dealing, and yeah, he sold drugs for sure, but are we talking about the the socio-political factors that went into that and the war on drugs that started even before he was even born? Like, yeah, he sold yeah. drugs, but he was just another soldier in that, you know, decades-long war within America. And I knew I wanted to paint these pictures because I feel like it would give a fresh perspective on a person mm-hmm. that we know so much about. Yeah. And I think two two things to that point. One is like for me, the moment that I realized like that your book was going to do this and that that was like thrilling to me was when you talked about the 1960s. And it yeah. had never occurred to me that like all of my favorite hip hop people of that generation were born between like 1969 and 1975, meaning like their parents were in their 20s and 30s during the civil rights movement. Like that these are children, you know, they're like what I hope that our generation's kids will be like in the wake of Black Lives Matter and all of the activism that's going on now, like that that influences them. And Again, like a lot of things as I was reading, I was sort of embarrassed because I was like, I feel like I should have connected these dots. But like just reading about Valletta Wallace, his mother, like coming to America in the 1960s and like as an immigrant to New York and what she was coming into and like what the politics of this time were. It was like, of course, this makes Biggie make more sense. And it also makes Biggie make more sense why he wasn't super political in his music. Yeah. Right. Like that, mm-hmm. that was a choice that he made, but it wasn't because he was ignorant to what was going on. Like, so all of that, like for me, I think that's, you know, chapter one or whatever. I was like, <laughs> oh, we're doing, we're doing this. Yeah. Right. And like, and the other thing that I really appreciated about it, which, um, you know, similar to a friend of yours's book, um, Danielle Smith's book in shine bright, it's the respect that you give to these artists that have been disrespected, like the fact that a true biography of Christopher Wallace did not really exist until now. Imagine, like imagine if there was no books on Elvis until 25 years after he died, you know, and like that, that those books wouldn't be deserving of contextualizing his life and his story or the Beatles or whoever. And so I think that like what you've done is really great and also like very important to the conversation of like what hip hop music is and what it means because like we're the hip hop generation junior I don't know we're not quite we're quite a little younger but you know what I mean like we deserve to have our heroes and our folk heroes and our leaders and our you know the people we deserve to have their stories told in context of America and not just in context of he wrote this song yeah that's not a question. This is no, a really no, long I, I sentence. No, and I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, one of the first people I spoke to, not even for an interview, just to tell them I was doing this, is a really good friend of mine. His name is Chel Hadari Coker. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of him. He he actually wrote a biography of Biggie back in 2002, 2003, which is... I, uh, but he's friends with Biggie, Yeah, right? he was, he, was he, knew, he knew Big personally. And yeah. Biggie told him, was like, I want you to be my Alex Haley, basically. Because mm. I want a book done on my life. I'm just not ready for it right now. Because he was only 24. Right. He figured right. like he had decades and decades more to live. So I knew he knew him personally. I knew... He took Biggie's story personally, and he's somebody that I consider a mentor and a friend 
So he's one of the first people I reached out to, but I was also kind of nervous to reach out to him because it was like, <laughs> you, you just never know how somebody's going to react. But yeah. he reacted in such a beautiful, authentic way. And he was like, look, it tripped. I can't remember what he said verbatim, but basically what he said was, it trips me out that the majority of what's been done on him is more so like a whodunit type thing. Like yeah. who, who pulled the a trigger? A crime story. A crime, crime. story. Exactly. And while that is, of course, part of the story, it's not the entire story. And he was like, I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful that you're telling this story for like a, a basically a new generation of hip hop fans. And he yeah. was like, if if anybody was to tell that story, it, it, I want it to be you. And that put a battery in my back. And I was like, okay, mm. I got to do this the right way. And so just to go off what you said, like outside of that, it really trips me out that there wasn't a, a, a definitive biography of Christopher Wallace's life in times. And, mm-hmm. and I knew, you know, Unbelievable is such an unbelievable book that I was like, all right, right. I got to do it differently than how Chell did it. You know what I mean? And right. that's when it hit me. It was just like, we put these, these other artists, like you said, the Beatles and Elvis mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. obviously John Lennon is part of the Beatles, but you get what I'm saying. And you What's know, his our, face? What's what Bruce Springsteen? Yeah, Bruce Springsteen. Obsessed with him. You know, Ooh. like all artists who obviously made a big impact on the world in their own ways. But I was like, we don't give hip hop artists that. It's just more so, like you said, they made this song. Oh, they talked about violence and some of them died in violent ways and maybe they brought that on themselves. Like, no, we have to give these people the care that they deserve because they made music that impacted the world. Their lives changed the world. I tell people all the time, I don't know if there's an artist, not just hip hop artists. I don't know if there's an artist, period, who did as much in such a short period of time as Biggie. You know, obviously mm. Pop falls into that as well, but Biggie's first album came out in September 1994. He was dead by March 1997. That's two and a yeah. half years. Like yeah. Pop's and, career was longer. Yeah, it was it was a little bit longer. But yes, they were both super young. So and, young. <laughs> and we need to give these artists, and, and for the sake of conversation, somebody like Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls, like we need to treat that with care because for so long, you know, these artists have been in in large part stripped of their humanity. They're remembered mm-hmm. by the negative headlines. Oh, Biggie beef with Tupac and Tupac beef mm-hmm. with Biggie. And then they were both, you know, uh, shot and drive by shootings and killed and drive by mm-hmm. shootings. Yes, that happened. But, you know, they lived so much of a rich life, even before, during and after that. That like we need to give these people the grace and humanity they they deserve because they've been stripped of that. And and you mentioned Danielle Smith. I think she did an incredible job with that in her mm-hmm. book as well. And just to be mentioned with her, you know, that that means the world to me because she's not only a really, really good friend of mine. She's somebody I've admired for well, well over half of my life. Yeah. She well, we she's she's our book club. She was our book club pick for May and she was a guest on the show. So everyone listening now knows yeah. how obsessed with Danielle I have become. Um, but reading your book so close together, because I, I read her book a few weeks ago, reading your book so close together, I was like, right, this is not just about black women in pop music. This is about black cultural icons, period. Yeah. Um yeah. and again, like talking about the thing the things that you know 
in your body that you know to be true but aren't actually validated. Like your book validated for me a lot of things that I knew about the racism against rappers, but like couldn't quite articulate or like, you know, you know, you know, these things like, you know, when you're talking to someone, when they, when a white person, you know, when they've said the N word, but like, Mm -hmm. you can't say for sure, but like, you know, it, that's how I felt reading your book. Yeah. I was (laughs) just like, ah, yes, I'm right. Mm -hmm. I knew it all along. Um, this is sort of a hypothetical. I'm asking you to do an impossible thing question. So you do do your best. Let's do it. How do you draw a line from 1990s hip hop to where we are right now as far as like black activism and pop culture. Like how do you give us context now like you did give Biggie context in the 90s? Like what would you say now about where we are? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no. I, it, it's a fascinating question and it's, it's a crazy hypothetical yeah. um, for sure. But, you know, the 1990s were the start of the uh commercialization of hip-hop when hip-hop really became like this undeniable force and mm-hmm. you know what's what's crazy is we saw it happening in the 90s we saw how impactful how influential and and, and how deeply hip, hip-hop permeated within american culture and society now the crazy thing is once biggie i mean once tupac was murdered and then six months later after biggie was murdered there was a real concern about, damn, is this it? You know, people mm-hmm. have been saying for a long time that hip hop was just going to fade away like disco did. It was, it was mm. just a fad. It was a trend. And mm-hmm. after those two murders, there was some legitimacy to that. It was like, okay, we just lost our two biggest stars within six mm-hmm. months of each other. Like, what the hell happens next? Well, we saw what happened next. Like, uh, of course, hip hop has never recovered from those two losses. But hip hop just became bigger. It, it became more commercially successful. It, it, you started to see it more and more commercials. You started to see more and more endorsements. But also, like when things went wrong, people also latched on to hip hop and be like, "See, this is why we don't need this in our society." And, and fast forward 25, 30 years, we see hip hop now is like I, I read a study a couple of weeks ago. The most streamed music in the world, not just America, but in the world is hip hop and R&B. They accounted for 31.1% of all streams, of all streams in music. And then everything else just basically broke down the remaining like 69%. And we've seen how society has really taken on these conversations of mental health awareness, social justice. And if you listen to hip hop and, and especially hip hop in its greatest form, that has always been there. It's always mm-hmm. been there. Um, you listen to NWA's early music on Straight Outta Compton. They were basically telling you, like, the situations in, in our communities, this is a ticking time bomb. Like, if, if you don't address this in the in, in the proper way, it's going to get yeah. ugly. And then yeah. what happened four years later? The L.A. riots. So right. when you listen to somebody like Kendrick Lamar's All Right, like, that's the right. soundtrack for... This this young black America, this young this young America who feels like our voices aren't being heard. When, when you when you see somebody like a J. Cole go on, I believe it was Letterman and do the song Be Free after Michael mm-hmm. Brown was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Brown was killed. So like the, 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 these connections have always been there. But I think now with, you know, the advancement of the Internet and social mm-hmm. media and literally everything is a click away. Whereas in the 90s, like 
if you miss something on TV, you better hope somebody recorded it on VHS or you better hope to see it again on like late night TV. But I would say that the connection now is it's more, it's more immediate. Like we can see that the connection, we can see, you know, artists at protests. We can see artists venting their frustrations, whether it be on Instagram stories or Twitter. And, you know, sometimes it has like a counter effect too. Like sometimes it can be bad. Like we, we see, What's going on with, you know, the Young Thug and Gunna situation with the Rico cases and uh, how, you know, their music can be used as a means to prosecute them. Now, I don't I don't know the ins and outs of that situation, but hip hop is the only genre that, you know, I'm going to take your lyrics and say, this is why you're a bad person. And we've seen it over and over again. We see it with YSL and Thug and Gunna. We saw it with Bobby Shmurda and the GS9 crew. We saw Mm -hmm. it with the late Draco, the ruler and how they tried to use his lyrics against them. Like we don't, we don't do that with movies. Do you know there's a book called rap on trial? Yeah. Yeah. And it's all, have you read it? I haven't read it, but it is definitely on my to-do list. Like I read it um, because I was hosting a panel for the library of Virginia's like nonfiction book awards a few years ago. Wow. And it was up for it and I got to speak to them and I don't, okay, no offense. I don't think the book is great. It's very redundant, but mm-hmm. like the intro and the outro of the book are phenomenal. And it yeah. makes, it makes so much sense. Like they talk about how like Johnny Cash was not uh, prosecuted for lyrics in his song. I guess he has a song about killing people. I don't, I don't know Johnny Cash, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but like yeah. he talks, I, I just remember him like naming Johnny Cash and me being like, wow, incredible. Yeah. But it's a really interesting book for people who are interested in that because you know, spoiler alert, racism. Uh, just <laughs> broadly throw that out there. Go figure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that like the death, I can only speak for myself and sort of anecdotally, but I do think that like the death, the murders of Pac and Biggie actually made hip hop bigger. I think that like it made it sexier because it in made very, it realer in a really yeah. fucked up way, but yeah. like also in a truly American way of like yeah. this obsession with death and like the death, the dramatic death of black celebrity and like the obsession with that. Like you were talking about making yep. you want to make them human because they've been stripped down to like their worst, most vulnerable, horrible moments. But I do think that like to a point having these men murdered and like outside publicly. Yeah both deaths were very public, like at a party, at a fight, like outside Mm -hmm. these locations, all these people. I do think that like that gave credibility to what they were talking about in a way that maybe you could ignore the truth of some of it before. I don't know. That's just like my sort of sense. Is It it definitely stamped the genre in a way that's authentic or something. And it's unfortunate that yeah, that had to be the authenticity of it, and I mean, it's just it it, it it's a power of the tongue too, you know. Yeah. Like Pac, t- Pac had a song, "I See Death Around the Corner," and he he talked about it. You know, he he right. talked about not living to be old. He talked about like I'm going to get out of here at an early age, and you know, Big named his first album "Ready to Die," and right. his second album "Life After Death." You know, right. and he he never had a chance to hear life after death in the world with everybody because he was murdered but like three weeks before right. it came out but yeah right. it, it definitely stamped hip-hop in a way that separated itself from from other genres in a sense but it's just it's just really it's really screwed up and it's really like you said american because there's this infatuation with death and 
you know, canonizing people after they're no longer here to be like, you mm-hmm. know what? This person was actually right about this, but mm-hmm. we didn't really give them their proverbial flowers when they were here. So let's like double down on it, you know, w- once they're gone. But yeah, in real time, it was scary because nobody knew what was going to come of hip hop. But in in the, you know, from a wide, from a macro point of view, they, they definitely became martyrs for, for mm-hmm. a genre. Although I don't, I don't know if either one really wanted to become a martyr. No. But I mean. No. I don't. Do you think people want to become martyrs? I think. Well, the way Pac talked about it, I think he was fine with it if that happened. But but if you talk if you talk about Biggie, like, yeah, he talked about death in his music. But he also talked a lot about like, yo, I can't wait to be like a suburban soccer dad to my kids. I can't wait to grow old. And um, even on his second album, even though it's called Life After Death, there's a. It sounds completely different from his first album. It, there's there's mm-hmm. not this level of desperation and and panic and paranoia uh, mm. the way that the first one was. And you can see that like he was really happy about. Obviously, the beef with Tupac really soured a lot of things, but he was very happy about where he was going in terms of, like being able to provide for his family, having mm-hmm. two kids that he knew mm-hmm. were going to depend on him. So, uh, but the, yeah, they they eventually became martyrs for for the genre. Like you can't talk about hip hop. And not have the names Tupac and Biggie come up, at least if if that's not the first two names out of your mouth, yeah. somewhere near the very, very front of the line. Right. OK, I want to talk about another figure in this book who is sort of a supporting character yeah. uh, in Big's life. Sean P. Diddy Combs. Yeah. Again, yeah. I'm going to say this again. There's a lot of things in this book I did not know. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of embarrassed about some of it. And again, I I blame my age and like where I was in my life for some of it, because I think that like as it was happening, I didn't really understand because I was nine. I had no fucking clue that Puff Daddy was like an actual tough guy. Like I always just thought that Puff Daddy was like hanging out with people on a boat in a in a wife beater with a with an open shirt, like hanging out, having a good time. Friends of friends. I know Mace. I know Biggie. I know Lil' Kim. I didn't know how like important he was behind the scenes to the actual music. I did not know that him and Suge Knight person like I knew Suge Knight was like a s- scary bad guy. Like I yeah. like his his reputation really that's it. That's like that's the itself. list. Yeah. But like if you you know, and I think this goes to kind of your point, like if you get to live, if you don't die at twenty four, twenty five, you get to become other things. I mean, yeah. we see it with Puffy. We also see it with Donald Trump throughout the book, who's mentioned a bunch of times. Like Donald Trump and Biggie's lives were like very connected for mm-hmm. the short period of Biggie's life. But like Donald Trump went on to become the fucking president and Puff Daddy went on to become Sean John, P. Diddy, Diddy, Sean Puffy Combs. Like, yeah. but I did not know about the incident at City College. Like there were so many things about Puff Daddy where I was like, oh, he was actually a serious person. Yeah, yeah. Puff. Um, he wasn't always like the butt of my jokes. No, like, <laughs> you Puff- know. You know, I, I won't call Puffy like a tough guy like Suge was. Like Suge, not was, not as tough as yeah. Suge, but like yeah, no. he was in, he was running yeah, he was around in, in the same conversation. Yeah, no, he, he wasn't what Puffy is now. Yeah, no, he Puff Puff uh, Puff knew a lot of dudes from the streets, and you know what I mean. Yeah. And like Puff was connected. I'm sure he still is in in, in his own ways, but it, there's no way to shortchange how big puffy was in the 
early 90s because even before big like the 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 city college incident was so was such a big news you know headline because you know he had he had worked with Jodeci and he had turned right. Jodeci into like this this hit act he was working with Mary J Blige he was working with Heavy D like he had the Midas touch he wasn't a producer in the sense of I'm gonna put this beat together he was a producer in the sense of kind of like a an interior decorator like Right. Let's put this right here. Let's put that right here. Let's put this drum kick right here. Let me ad lib a part right here because this is this is going to catch people's ear. He knew how to craft a hit. And right. um yeah, with the City College incident, you when we talk about Travis Scott and what happened at Astro World, yes. there was so many parallels to Puffy and what happened with the City College incident in November, I mean no, excuse me, December 1991. And when you talk about Biggie in relation to Puffy, Puffy needed that win. Puffy needed that, like, okay, I am going to have a life in the music industry after this mm. horrific and traumatic event, which, you know, followed him for years after that. It still technically follows him now, but definitely in the decade after that event, he still he was still dealing with the legal ramifications of it, which is why, like, when you talk about Puffy, for all the success that he had, Basically, having Biggie drop in his lap was mm-hmm. what he needed desperately at that point because a lot of people had turned on him because of that City College incident. The newspapers were saying some not so flattering things about him <laughs> in there, right? And you know he was he was kind of wearing out his welcome at Uptown. So when Biggie fell in his lap, he was like, "Wait a minute, like I, you know, I'll do my Diddy thing." Whereas like I, I, I'll. I'll put you in these clothes. I'll, you know, I'll ask you to make these type of hits. But like this dude is a tailor-made rapper that, you know, is rapping about, you know, life in the streets. And this is what uh, I want to get into in terms of like my next big artist. So, uh, yeah, the, the Puffy story runs in tandem with Big Story and the story of America in this book in a very, very real way, because I don't think you can tell it any other way. Right, right. I mean, I just think like I just remember my brother getting like sean john clothes yeah and i like he was he was like just i just think he's become sort of a joke because his name was puff daddy and i think that like puff daddy just the words like is such a joke i mean even in the book valetta is like who (laughs) when he's like this guy puff daddy's gonna help me and he's like what she's like what are you saying um but like i think about like the remember the shirts had like the puffy lettering the sean john shirt like, yeah. in the cursive and it like stood out from the shirt and that was like such a revolutionary thing that i remember it you know yeah. 20 years later like i'm talking about it right now yeah I, and i also like i did not realize how much how many people had been like killed or beat up or whatever prior that like led to this situation i sort of thought of it as like how beef is now where it's like oh she tweeted a mean thing like i never yeah. really thought about nah. like the context of like re- like that was some real shit people yeah, were dying no. like yo yeah a lot of people get the 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 east west thing can misconstrued as where it's like oh it was really just biggie and tupac you know, having a falling right. out. Yes, that happened. But no, that that beef was really more so Suge and Puffy. Suge, and, yeah. You know, the 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 nineteen ninety five Source Awards are always remembered because of the theatrics of everything in there. You know, Snoop getting up on stage saying East Coast ain't got no love for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, and you know, right. uh, Suge basically dissing Puffy at uh, on stage, basically saying, "Come to death row if you don't want the executive producer." 
all in the video. Like, yeah, the, right. the, the theatrics are remembered from that. But what a lot of people don't know is what really set that off was a month later at Jermaine Dupri's birthday party in Atlanta when one of Suge Knight's closest friends was murdered. And Death Row and Bad Boy were in the party together. They were allegedly, you know, wolfing back and forth. And uh, they, you know, Suge and Puffy had to be escort- basically escorted out of the party. And per the reports, uh, they say that one of Puffy's bodyguards killed one of Suge's friends, shot him and killed him. And that, more than anything, is what, you know, th- there was blood on the streets, literally, at that point. And, right. yeah, there there was, unfortunately, there was no turning back. Uh, Suge wanted to annihilate Puffy. Mm-hmm. He... He was already bail- he was already bailing Tupac out, and he knew that you know Tupac for as as iconic of an artist as he is is probably the most iconic artist of my lifetime because I, mm-hmm. I mean I love Tupac but he was also he could be manipulated very easily mm-hmm. and you know, Suge saw a vulnerable Tupac Tupac mm-hmm. was in prison for a crime that he you know, for to the day that he died, said he didn't commit, but he was sitting in a maximum security penitentiary. He was being, you know, he was being abused by prison guards in, in jail and like, right. he was going crazy. So like, if his get out of jail car was Suge and Suge was like, yo, we got a ride on Puffy and Biggie and Bad Boy, Tupac was going to do that to the most mm-hmm. nth degree possible. And he knew he could manipulate that about Tupac. So by the time Pac got out of prison less than a month later, gasoline was already being thrown on the fire and there was, there was, you know, there was, yeah. So the East West thing, yes, there was a lot of violence in that period in time that, you know, a lot of, a lot of it just never got reported, you know, outside of a police report. If there was a police report, they never made headlines. I don't want to talk too much about Tupac because it's some of my favorite stuff of the book and I want people to read it. Yeah. Um, But I will just say another thing I did not know. I didn't know they were friends. See, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm very, very glad you brought that up. And we talked about, um, you know, stripping humanity and, you know, grace and things of that nature. Like when we hear Biggie and Tupac, we hear, oh, they had beef and Tupac uh, dropped, hit him up. And, you know, they, they had a falling out and then they died. Like, yes, those are parts of the story that actually happened. That is very true. But like, if we're... If we're going to sensationalize that over the last quarter century, then we also have to talk about why that falling out was so dramatic. It's because yeah. their friendship was so intense. It was so pure and it was so genuine. Like they, there was yeah. a there was a deep level of respect for Biggie with Tupac and Tupac with Biggie. And I wanted this book to showcase that just as much as anything else, because, again, they were both young black men with large positions of power, still trying to figure out their own lives and just yeah. happy being in concert with each other. And so I, I yeah. yeah, they they were they weren't just friends. They were really, really good friends, which makes the story that much more tragic. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but I just will say for people, there's a, a little anecdote in the book about some flowers oh, that yeah. basically made me want to put the book down and cry for seven months. So yeah. Just really a tenderness. Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last 
three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. I have to tell you a personal story about Biggie's death. So I live in LA. I think you know that. We met here. And I have two and a half year old twins, boys. They love cars. We have a membership to the Peterson Car Museum, Automotive Museum. So as I'm listening to the book, kind of early on, you tease out like, you know, on March 9th, 97, at the corner of Fairfax and Wilshire. And I'm like, where is that? I was like, I know where that is. That's so close. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. And then as we get to the end, you're like, oh, Biggie's like, oh, I'm going to go to this party at the Peterson Car Museum. And I was like, on Fairfax and Wilshire? (gasps) No. (laughs) So now I can never go back to the museum because I'm going to just feel so differently about that space. And like, it's also right across the street from where the new Academy or Oscar Academy Awards Museum is. It's the really? same. They're on the same corner. Yeah. They're, okay. they're across the street from each other. I had no idea. I've lived yeah. in the city for 10 years. I had no idea. That's where it was. Yeah. 
When I first moved to LA in 2015, and just me being like a pop culture nut, I was like, yo, you like I have went to there go. first. I you like went, went to In and Out and then there. Yeah, yeah I, de- <laughs> I definitely got some food first. And um, I went to I went to some food first. I went to a dispensary and then I went to the corner of like Fairfax and Wilshire. And it's so wild because it's kind of like Koval and Flamingo in Las Vegas where Pac was killed. Like mm-hmm. at Fairfax and Wilshire, at least for me, because I knew what happened right there and I understood the history. Like it's heavy right there. There's nothing around there that would signal like, okay, this is where, you know, mm-hmm. Christopher Wallace was murdered or anything like that. But mm-hmm. if you know, you know. And it, it just felt very heavy. I'm like, wow, it happened like right here. So mm-hmm. yeah, once you realize where it is, you you can't look at it. The, the crazy thing is I've actually never been inside the Peterson though. I've always I'd never seen been it. until like two months yeah. ago. My in-laws got us a membership because my kids are obsessed with cars. I don't care about cars. Could care less. Like truly <laughs> one of the things I'm the least interested in in the world is automotives. Like it's a no for me, but I go like twice a month now at least. Yeah, now you have to. Um, yeah. Now I have to go. I'm like, and we have a member. It's just anyways, it's a nightmare for me personally. But <laughs> knowing that that's there now, the next time I go, I'm going to have to like put on juicy or something yeah. and go by and like feel really connected but it's just I, I agree with you I feel like whenever I go to places where I know something you know trash someone's life has been taken like when you know it and you get to that place there is something that like sucks the air out of the space for you yep. I've been to Vegas many times but I've never been to where Tupac was killed knowingly but now that I know the intersection I can check that out next time I go which will be never um, <laughs> I'm wondering a little bit about your research yeah, interview process. I know you talked about, um, I've heard you talk about like, you know, listening to podcasts and, and watching documentaries. And I think you talked about that in the conclusion of the book um, of like some of your sources. And you also talk about how, you know, you weren't able to, to get, you know, Valletta Wallace and, and Faith Evans and Lil' Kim and yeah. like a lot of the people that we publicly know to be the closest um, to Biggie. And so I'm wondering like, how were they on your list originally? They said no. How did you then source like later people? Also yeah. was sort of surprised Danielle Smith was not a source in the book. I was expecting to see her because she wasn't she, she was around. She was doing her yeah. thing then. Yeah, and she, I know you know her and I know she was oh, like yeah. you worked with her. I was like, oh, she'll she'll pop up. And she yeah. did. So I was a little sad. Um <laughs> yeah, Danielle actually wrote the obituary for Big, I believe, right. in Vibe. Um right. but yeah, it I wanted to interview Danielle for it, but I know she was like neck deep in her book at that time. That's and right, like that's the timing right. just just didn't work out. But she was okay. absolutely a great resource for me with this book in, in terms of like pointing me in directions of where to go and people who to talk to. Um, but early on, when, when I first signed a contract to do this book, I, I wrote a letter and I sent it to Biggie's estate. And I mm-hmm. wanted to let them know, I was like, hey, look, I'm working on this book. And I would love to have your involvement on it, but I, I completely understand if you don't want to, right. but I want you to know that this is happening. And I want you to know that like, this is not some like clickbait salacious type book where I'm trying to expose, you know, deep, dark secrets of his life and, you know, tear him apart. This is not that. Now right. we'll be honest and forthcoming about his entire life, good, bad, and indifferent as, as best as I can. But I want you to know this book is going to be done out of like love and respect uh one for his legacy and who he is as a person but also the craft of journalism as well right and so 
I never heard anything back, but I never heard anything back saying, no, we don't want you to do this book either. So I knew early on, I probably wasn't going to get Valletta or Faith, but I also looked at it as like, there's a ton of archival material on them already Mm -hmm. talking about big, of course you want to get your own new material, but like it could be worse. It could be nothing out there on them talking about them. So I knew I had that. But it was also a chance for me to introduce new voices in, into it, um, or at least voices that really don't get as much pub in terms of the Biggie story. Like uh, Drew Dixon was one of my favorite interviews for for this book. Um, she was uh, the music industry exec who lived in Brooklyn in like the early 90s. And she and Biggie formulated a great friendship just in terms of trying to crack into the music industry around the same time, but from different ways. Uh, Talk to party promoters down in um, in Raleigh, North Carolina, when he was hustling. And this would be big lying about being Chubb Rock's cousin, saying right. just so he could get on the mic. So every person I interviewed, I would always, you know, you know, as you know, as a reporter, you like, is there anybody else I should be talking to? And can right. you like point me in that direction? And people were more than willing to point me in the direction that. Now, not every interview came up that they pointed me in the direction to, but I appreciated that nonetheless. So yeah. that that was how I got a lot of interviews. It was just more like a scavenger hunt. Like you get one person who will refer you to two more and those two people will refer <laughs> you to four and so on and so forth. But in terms of research, I've always been a research nerd. I love reading like newspaper archives. I love going through like, you know, news, news archives, whether it be TV stations or radio programs and I already had a lot of knowledge about Biggie going into it. So it helped it helped me think of new ways to talk about him throughout the process. So it was it was it was confusing at first, but once I got my footing, uh mm. I, I I think I hit a good groove around maybe like June or July of twenty twenty. Yeah. I liked your sources. I felt like they lent a lot of depth that you maybe wouldn't get from the family or like people really close. I also think like one of the things that I appreciated about your book was how important the women in Christopher's life were to his story. Obviously his mother, but his daughter, Faith, Lil' Kim, like uh, Charlie Baltimore. Like I just, I can't remember her name, but his, the mother of his daughter. Yeah. Jane Jackson. Um, Yep. Yeah, I think like so so often women are erased, as we've talked about, from pop music, from yeah. hip hop, and also from the legacies of, you know, these folk heroes, right? Like, obviously, we all know Tupac's mom because he made sure we did with Dear Mama, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, and and her story, she was, she was infamous, famous in her own right for her own activism. But yep. I just, I think that like, I, I, I just want to say thank you for including them and making sure that they were as important to his story as as Sean P. Diddy Combs or yeah. as Tupac, because they really informed his music and his choices and his humanity. Yeah. Like I, I well, thank you for thanking me for that. Cause I'm always, <laughs> I'm always very cognizant about that in just in anything that I do, whether it's a podcast or whether it's a, a written story or whether it's like this book. And I, that's something I, I noticed a lot growing up as to where, like when I read like these, stories on like these these great men who did so many things like the women in their lives at best if they were like footnotes at mm-hmm. worst you just didn't hear from them at all and i was like mm-hmm. for me to tell this story about biggie smalls there's no way you cannot talk about the women in his life and yes valetta of course and of course faith because he was married to her but like like so much of his story revolved around women you know good right. and bad 
you know? Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I knew that I wanted to do this and I knew they had to be, you know, important parts of this story. Because like you said, they made up part of who he is. Like, right. you know, so much of who Biggie is, is Tiana. But how did Tiana come into this world? Is it, it, through his relationship with Jan Jackson. And how did they meet? And how did they grow together? And how did they fall apart? Like, you have to talk about it all. Right. And I credit Danielle Smith with really helping me make that a priority in mm. everything that I do. And because uh, we would work on stories at The Undefeated and, you know, I'd be like, man, I I, I need a woman's voice in this. I, she was like, yeah, let's get some women in here. Let's do that. Because and it just it just makes the story that much richer when, when you have right. like a diverse array of voices. And right. so it, that's always a, a priority of mine. I'm not just putting women in the story just to be like, oh, look, it's a woman in the story. Just to be right, like, hey, right, look, right. I. No, I'm doing that because I understand the value, the texture, and just the the nuance that you know that brings to a story. So I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and I thank you for thanking me. Just know I'm thankful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, we have to quickly talk about the cover. Yeah, because it's so good. Mm-hmm. How involved were you in the cover? How like what was the process? Were you involved at all? I know sometimes authors aren't. I just I think it's a uh, great cover. I, the, the cover is phenomenal. The cover, it, it makes you want to read the book. The spine is beautiful. Uh, I love the fact that the spine is kind of reminiscent of like his Kooji sweaters. His sweaters. And, yeah. yeah. So and I love be- that his sweaters are in cover, on color on the yep. cover. Yep. And that he's, ugh, it's, I, I, it's so good. <laughs> and I love when you open the book, there's like a map of Brooklyn and like mm-hmm. this. So to be honest, I had nothing to do with that. I, I mm. They showed me the final version of it. I was like, whoa. Okay. So they showed me like a couple different versions of, of of artists who they were thinking of designing the cover. And the one that stood out to me the most, like immediately was the one that eventually became that. And I was like, yo, I don't know who did that. I didn't know who did it at first. I was like, I don't know who that did that. Please pick that person. Please yeah. pick that person. <laughs> and they were, they were great. And now in terms of the cover, the only thing I came up with was the title. Okay, but I want to ask you about that. How did you decide which lyric? Did you always know that was what it was going to be when you started working on it? Um, no. Like when I first first started, and I actually found my old Google Doc about this. Like (laughs) uh, the original title was like "Sky's the Limit," which is my favorite Biggie song. Like "Sky's Mm -hmm. the Limit," uh, something about Biggie Smalls' gospel or something like that. And it was just a placeholder Mm -hmm. title because I was like, "All right, this title is way too long." And I'm like, but it's not going to stick. Come to find out, I eventually had a a long title. And I changed the title early on, not knowing that it was actually going to stick. But I knew, like, it was all a dream is one of those, like, like famous call and responses in Mm -hmm. all of music, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, for people like us. Like, we're going to, like, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up up Magazine. Everybody knows what goes after that. So it's going to... It's gonna roll off the tongue for a lot of people. Like, all right, that that's a very famous that's a very famous lyric in in music. So I stuck with that. And then once I started getting the contextual stuff about society and America, and you know, mm-hmm. just giving like the history lesson, that's where the biggie in the world that made him came from. So it was, it was kind of right. like a two part process. Yeah, I was I was as I was listening, I was trying to think of like what other lyrics would have worked but it's Mm -hmm. i think it's the best one but i um the now i can't think of it the like 
uh, show love. It's the Brooklyn way. I thought that was potentially. What yeah, that, been that's good too. Yeah, because that, he's too. so Brooklyn, and like you make that point. Because mm-hmm. I think like also part of his legacy is like how Brooklyn he was. Because with Tupac, he wasn't from a place. He yeah. was like he was like from a lot of places. Yeah, and so. You know, like I know they did a huge party for Biggie's 50th birthday, but I don't mm-hmm. think they did that for Tupac because it was like, who was going to do it? Was Oakland going to do it? Was Baltimore going to do it? Was New York going to do it? Like, it was like, yeah. there's no there's nowhere for him to be. Anyways. Hey. Okay. I want to talk about you for a second. Okay. You are a writer at Anscape, formerly mm-hmm. The Undefeated, an impossible yep. thing to remember, but I made a note before hey, I started talking. Hey, you, look, you nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> How did you make time to write this? Did you take like a sabbatical thing or did you just sort of fill it in as you could? Uh, if I knew then what I know now, I would have absolutely taken a sabbatical, but I didn't. I was working on this. I was working on this Nipsey Hustle podcast that I that I was working on. And I was working on Dwayne Wade's photographic memoir, Dwayne, oh, right. which which I helped write. So I was doing all three of those <laughs> plus writing for what, which at that point in time was still the undefeated. All at the same time. And again, if I knew then what I know now, I would never do that again. Cause it was just, it was so much, it was fill, it was fulfilling in a sense because I saw all three projects coming to life at the same time mm. while still writing for the undefeated. But that was a it was a lot of work. So when I work on this second book, I will definitely take time to focus on that and just that. That was gonna be one of my questions. I know you have a two-book deal. I heard you on Books or Pop Culture yesterday. Yeah. You mentioned maybe wanting to be the Alex Haley to Alan Iverson's Malcolm X sort of yeah, story I would, situation. I would love that. I would love that. If it's not that, and I know you probably have ideas, so don't actually tell me, but like, is there another artist you would want to write about? I'm sure there's many. Yeah. Or you can also say you can't say anything if it's. Um, yeah. yeah, I can't say it right now, right. only because uh, I'll tell you when we get off. But you know, okay. on, on oh, the record, yes, I love secrets. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah there's definitely there's plenty of artists I would like to write on, but in in particular, of course, I mean, uh, uh, a bio on Jay Z's already been kind of kind of written. Um, mm-hmm. obviously, decoded, which Jay Z and Dream Hampton did, still one of my favorite books. I but you know, I if Jay. That. If, if Jay ever wanted to do something else in the written world, I, I would I would love to work on that with him. Yeah, um, there, there's so many. I mentioned Alan Iverson, uh, who I consider an artist as well. But sure. um, yeah, who I'm trying to think who else. Does Tupac have a book? <laughs> um, so they're, not, they're really. not not really in the in the sense of a biography like how this right. one is. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I would. I want I, him to have a book. Yeah, I love him. I just. I, I have to say, like, he just was so compelling. Like, you made him so compelling in this book that I'm like, he he needs a book. Just oh, to, yeah, to I, give Tupac a book. Look, if I was <laughs> I would love to write a Tupac book. And that now that would be that might be like six hundred pages. Cause that dude yeah. lived I mean, Biggie Biggie lived six lifetimes in one. So that I mean Tupac lived like at least twelve in one. Like he yeah. He packs so much into 25 years that it's ridiculous. It's incredible. Well, that's yeah. why every time I think about Tupac and then I like Wikipedia him and I'm like, right, he was only 25, that it's like so confusing to my brain because he was like such a force for such a short amount of time. It just feels like he should have been a, a he couldn't have done it so quickly. But he did. Um, I know. It makes me mm-hmm. so sad. I can't yeah. even. I can't Fair. even. Okay. How do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? How often do you listen to music? If so, what are you listening to? Are, do you have snacks and beverages? That part's important. 
candles, rituals. Tell us about it. Yeah, so it, it kind of shifts. Uh, yeah, I do. Obviously, I write often. I listen to music sometimes. Sometimes I listen to music that like get me in the mood to write, but I can't okay. really listen to music while I write. Okay. Uh, because it'll just distract me. Because next thing I know, I'm, I'm typing lyrics down like subconsciously. <laughs> like, wait a minute, what? Like that makes no sense. Um, but there's there's like this lo-fi station on YouTube that just plays like these really chill beats that I okay. love to write okay. to. So. Okay. Snacks. I'm not really a big snacks person, to be honest. With you. I'm not. Yeah, my wife says the same thing. Like she loves snacks, but I, I really, I love it. Now, don't get it twisted. I love to eat. You know what okay. I mean. But I can't, I can't put like chicken wings or like you know mac and cheese in front of me while I write because then is that a snack? Is mac and cheese a snack? No, to you? That's, that's what like I said. That's a full that's part said. of a meal. That's so you're a I meal said. person. Yeah, I'm a meal. I'm a meal person. I really, is, okay. I will eat snacks. I have nothing against them, but I don't actively go seek them out. What about um, beverages? Um, you know, I, I have some water by me, but I also have some adult beverages too. That that'll help right. me get in the get in get the loose. mood. Yeah, get loose because you know you need to be loose while you're writing. You can't be tense because then you know nothing will ever come out. So yeah, I, I have have some water, but I also have you know some Woodford around because uh, I'm a big fan of old fashions. Oh, okay. Uh, you and my yeah. husband should start a podcast about yeah. whiskey and rye and things. Hey, look, I'm with it. I'm with it. He's Tell very him. into it. I'm with it. Now, the thing is, I can't have too many. because well, then obviously, you're working. Yeah, you know, next thing you know, I'll fall asleep at the computer, but... Yeah. Uh, you just which, turn in a draft happened? with just like you wrote other people's lyrics and that's it. You're like, oops, Yo, I don't know what happened. There was one time I, I did that. I don't know whether I was, what whether I had too, too much to drink or whether I was just sleepy. Probably a combination of both. I'm typing and I, I guess I fell asleep for like five minutes. My hand was on like the letter M. And I woke up and it was just like M's for like 27 pages. I'm like, what the hell just happened here? I wish I I would have saved it. I wish you would have sent it in and been like, here you go, Danielle Smith. I'm a serious reporter. Here you go. She was like, why is this thing 37 pages? Like, oh, trust me. Get to page seven and you'll understand. It's real good. It's real good around there. Mm -hmm. Um, What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, environment. I did, yeah, for yo that word like gives me fits. Like even <laughs> to this day, like I have like environment. That's for how I whatever, say it when I write yeah, it. That environment. environment, environment kicks my ass every time. Yeah. Okay, I like that. You're. I think you're the first person to ever say that word on the show. So congratulations. <laughs> Appreciate it. Oh. We didn't really talk about your podcast, King of Crenshaw, partially because I haven't listened to it. I just found out about it. Sorry. Uh, no, blame fine. your marketing team. Um, but I am in L.A. <laughs> and I have to listen to it. But I, OK, again, I guess I just not that into hip hop is maybe what we're finding out. I didn't know very much about Nipsey Hussle well, that's, that's uh, the when good he thing. was alive. Yeah. You, it's that's a good, a good thing. thing. I mean, well, it's not a good thing. But in terms of the podcast, I guess it oh. is because you're going in there green, like everything yeah. that you're about to learn everything about him. You'll, I know. You know, much much like Biggie, like this dude was a lot more than just his music. And yeah. he touched a lot of people in a lot of real ways that, you know, will be felt for a long, long time to come. He is the same way Biggie is synonymous with Brooklyn. Nipsey will mm-hmm. always be synonymous with South Central. In the yeah. Crenshaw well, it's just district. interesting, like living here and driving around and like seeing all the murals of him. Like mm-hmm. obviously there's lots of Kobe murals, but there's yeah. lots of Nipsey murals and Nipsey was not nearly as famous. Yeah. 
nationally as as Kobe. So like to see how important he was to the community, it's like you can't deny it because he's er- he's everywhere. Like he's everywhere. Yeah, it's just it's wild. So I'm I'll excited be to listen to, to that. Yeah, I'll obviously report feedback. back. Please. I will, of course, of course. Um, I'm not shy about that. I do want to know, though, you know, writing a book versus like creating the podcast, did you have a preference? Was one more enjoyable, more fulfilling? Because I'm assuming the amount of research was maybe not exactly the same, but it was big yeah, projects. They, yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of research that went into both. I say they were both equally fulfilling while being separate because I've okay. always wanted to write a book and I, you know, I, I consider myself a professional writer at this point, but I had never written a book. So I knew that was that was going to take a different set of responsibilities and a different type of commitment. Although I know how to write. So it's basically like, all right, this has to be 100,000 words. All right. So I basically have to write 25,000 word pieces. You know, that's how (laughs) I broke it down. And I was like, all right. So it's not that daunting when I look at it. Now, the podcast, it it was crazy because... On certain moments, I would be in book writing mode, and then I would have mm. to switch to podcast mode, which means I go, I got to go into script writing mode. Which mm-hmm. it wasn't easy t- to turn one off and turn the other on, and vice versa for mm. me. So that 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 was a learning curve for me. Script writing is totally different than book writing because in book writing, you got time to build a scene up, you got time to, you know, uh, you know, talk about the contextual parts of society while talking about right. Biggie, whereas in a in script writing, like you got to get right to it right then, while still managing to give context to a scene. And thankfully, I had an incredible production team with me, uh, and they they really helped me out in terms of like how the hell do I do this? Because I know the idea is great, but I have no clue how to bring it together. And they yeah. they helped me out quite literally every single step of the way. And I'm very pleased with how it came out. And I can't wait for you to listen. I can't wait to listen. I'm going to cue it up asapsually. There we um, go. I listened to some of your book on audio and I really liked your narrator guy, but he said Jesus and Mero wrong. And as a person who's had Jesus and Mero on this very oh, podcast, man. I was deeply offended. He called him Jesus and Mero. Oh. oh, no. And I was like, oof, guy, Dion, you've got a great voice, but my guy, it's... Jesus. No, he's he's got a he's got a great which is wild because we spoke a lot while he was recording that and he would call and ask me uh how to say a lot of different things, but I, I don't think <laughs> Jesus and Mara was ever one of them though. Well, like, he went man. strong and wrong. And you know what, Dion? Never gonna forgive you because I am very much a bodega girl. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> Dion's a great dude, but yeah, I understand. He's got Look, a great voice. Oh my yeah. God. He did such a good job. I mean, the audiobook is really fantastic for people who are curious if it's worthy. It is worthy. Okay. I have, we have to wrap up, but I have just a few more quick questions. You have had this like whirlwind last few weeks um, promoting the book. The book's yeah. been out al- almost a month, not even a month yet as recording, but about a month as people are listening. Who's the coolest person who's expressed interest or talk to you about the book you mean outside of you me you i'm mean not outside, cool yeah you, you are. did a thing you had talked to a thing yeah, where jay-z yeah. came after you so yeah. i feel like that's cooler um, <laughs> but thank you no it was, it was it was cool like good morning america was cool because that, mm. that's when my mom and grandma really realized like oh mm. wow this is a thing you know what mm-hmm. i mean like that was mm-hmm. a metric for them like i know good morning america obviously they know who biggie smalls is as well right. they're like wow this is this is cool going on sway 
was definitely <laughs> for a hip hop nerd like myself. Yeah. That was that was lit. Like to be in there with yeah. Heather B was dope. And honestly, to be seated right beside uh, C.J. Wallace, Biggie and Faith's son, mm-hmm. while talking about Biggie and telling stories about Biggie and having C.J. be like, "Why I never knew that about my dad. Like, hmm. that was powerful for me. So that was great. And yeah, the, the, the Twitter spaces, I still have to add open for Jay-Z in my LinkedIn <laughs> bio. But, you know, to hear Jay-Z say like, no, nah, I'm going to read the book. Is he going to read the book? I don't know. But he said he would. And so I'm interested for that. And so, like you said, it's been a world. All of it still feels surreal. Still feels super surreal. So So cool. I have a theory. This is not really a question, and I know I'm going to go over, but we're just going to. It's fine. Um, Do you have time to go over? Yeah, 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 it's cool. Okay. As I ask you after we've already got over. Um, (laughs) I have this theory that if Biggie and Tupac were still alive, that Jay-Z would not be married to Beyonce. Do you think one of them would be married to Beyonce? I I like to think Tupac might have been. I I just I don't know. I just because when I think okay, here's why I say this: mm-hmm. no shots at Jay. Obviously, life turned out the way that life turned out. But like when they were rapping and being the huge celebrities that they were, Jay was like he wasn't a thing. And so I just wonder if he would have been able to take up as much space if they were still around. So not that maybe she would be with that one of them, though. I do think maybe Tupac because it's sort of a fantasy of mine, but um, <laughs> I, I just don't know. I just don't know. Do you think Jay would have become Jay if they were still around? I think Jay was going to be a star. I, I Granted, would he have been this big? Maybe, maybe not. I, I honestly have no clue, but I think Jay was going to be a star because okay. if Biggie and Tupac never died, Jay and Biggie, and Biggie were going to come gonna, out, yeah. do that joint album. And if they were going to come out with a joint album, that was going to be like the biggest thing in rap at that point. Because now sure. by 1996, when Jay released his first album, like Tupac was already on death row. He was the biggest star in rap. Biggie was big. So he wasn't a superstar at the same time they were superstars. Right. But I do think he would have eventually become a superstar in his own regard. Would he have been, because now it feels like in terms of like the living goats in hip hop, like Jay-Z sits on a level all to himself, Yes, you know, in a sense. I do think if Biggie and Tupac had lived, that level of acclaim would have been more crowded than what it is right now. You know, Mm -hmm. like, but I also think like, had Pac lived, he would have gone more into acting. I think Pac yeah. would have been much more of a full-fledged actor. I don't know how long, how much longer Tupac would have rapped. I think he would have still always been rapping. But in terms of just releasing music at the clip right. that he was doing in his life, I don't think that would have kept up, and nor should it have. He had interests right. outside of music. It would have been great to see Tupac in you know this whole era of like social justice and mm-hmm. you know this this hypersensitivity to you know black lives matter and police right. reform and brutality and relations like um you know I, Tupac I, I, would not have a deal with the NFL I'm just going to go ahead and say that nah, Mr. Nah. Hova he he he, <laughs> he might not have but you know the- I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? He would have. He probably would have become washed just like the rest of them. They're all fifty-year-old men now. They're all washed. Mm-hmm. It's great. They got to yeah. grow old. I, my only hope is that I. I don't think, and I don't think Tupac would have. I, I just wouldn't have wanted to see him as, uh, as a like get off my lawn type type rapper. I know. Like, I you know, because Pac was what. Now I do imagine like imagine Tupac was social media. 
Oh my god! Like imagine it would Tupac be like would like someone Instagram. take his phone. Yeah. Yeah, like you know, <laughs> I, I know. do well, hope he would. Yeah. I, he, I, I would. I hope he wouldn't have been one of those artists that like flipped on us and like like uh yeah I'm voting for Trump in 2020. Like yeah, you hope he wouldn't have gone full Dave Chappelle. Yeah. You know, like, like like don't don't go full Kanye like how Kanye. Yeah. Did, but right. Um, but you just you just never know, man. We got older; they didn't. Okay. Last two questions for real. Mm-hmm. For people who love this book, what are some other books that are in conversation with this book that you think they might like? Obviously, we talked about Danielle's book, but anything yeah. else? Oh, go get uh, Dan Charnas' uh, Dilla Time that's on the late great producer oh, yeah. Jay Dilla. That is phenomenal. I uh, have it. It's really good. Oh, my God. That book is I don't phenomenal. even know who Jay Dilla is. <laughs> see? See? That's why you... Look, <laughs> Jay Dilla is a hip-hop legend. You should definitely... and. So you're going into the book green, the same way with the Nipsey podcast. You're going I'm going green, to so everything you... green. Yeah, I thought uh, I liked hip hop. Apparently, spoiler alert, yeah. I guess I don't. I don't know anything. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of great like hip hop books to come out this year. And I'm not even just talking about, you know, what I oh, I hope my book is in that conversation. It is. But, it is. you know, J, uh, Dan Charner's Dan Charner's Dilla Time on Jay Dilla. Mm-hmm. Uh Paul Cancer wrote an amazing book on Mac Miller, which really puts oh. Mac's life into you know, like this really great perspective. Uh, this isn't uh, hip hop, but Garrett Kennedy wrote uh, an incredible book on on Whitney. Uh, on Whitney, didn't we almost have it all? There's there's a little Kim biography coming out later this year, which is oh. going to be phenomenal. Who's uh, writing it? Do you know? uh, yeah, Kathy, and I. It's, I, I think the word of it, but I, I mispronounce her last name all the time. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll just but, link to it in the show notes. We'll yeah, just put yeah. A link. link to I won't it in embarrass the show notes. you. Yeah, yeah. Kathy, we're linking. We're linking. Yeah, but she, she's, uh, she's dope. But um, and she, um, do you remember that Aaliyah book that came out recently? Uh, yeah. Uh, did you hear? Did, she wrote that book as well. She wrote that one too. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, cool. those, those are some, those are some other books that are definitely worth. Also, it's not, it's not music related, but my man David Dennis, the movement of made course. us, is is a phenomenal book. Please get that. So everybody who's listening to this right now, you will know that David was our guest the first week of June, and he'll be back next week as you're listening to this to discuss White Negroes by Lauren Michelle Jackson with me. So you'll all be very well versed in nice. David and his yeah, stuff. David's the man. It's one of my He's best great. friends. I know. I love that your books come out on the same day. I love that you guys love each other. Talk yeah. about it. It makes so sweet. But don't yeah. you two can't have a falling out, okay? Don't no, write no. who shot you about David, okay? Like, <laughs> no, I need you guys to stay that. together forever. No, I, I won't do that. Now, me and David, we've been through too much to ever have a falling out now. So it, okay. this is always going to have a happy ending. <laughs> okay. Okay, good, good, good. All right, last question. Normally, I ask people if you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? But I'm going to sort of flip it on you and just okay. ask you straight up, would you want Christopher Wallace to read this book? Absolutely. I, 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 you know, I hope that, you know, in some spiritual sense, heavenly sense that like he has a copy up in heaven mm. and he's reading this and he'd be like, you know what? This is accurate. Or this is something I can be proud of that is written about me. And I had no control over what, you know, what went in there. But I'm proud of this. So, like, yeah, I I, I would love for him to read it. And I hope, again, like I said, in that spiritual sense that he has. And I hope that, mm-hmm. you know, he finds it as a fitting, you know, dot in the universe that is his massive legacy. Mm, I love that. All right, everybody. The book is called It Was All a Dream. I've been talking to the wonderful Justin Tinsley. You can get the book wherever you get your books. It's out in the world. I have to say, I'm just really excited that this book exists. I think you're a 
freaking incredible writer. And I just, I can't wait to see whatever your next book is. I can't wait. You know, you guys can find Justin's work on Anscape. It's like prolific. The podcast we're all going to group listen to together, the Nipsey podcast. Um, So yeah, Justin, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true privilege to come on this podcast and talk about this book and have your cosign, which is a big (laughs) cosign in this world. So thank you very, very much. (laughs) I love that people think that I've fooled everyone. Thank you, scammer. (laughs) (laughs) You are not a scammer. (laughs) I am. I am. It's true. I'm telling you now. You guys can put this in the documentary about how I'm a scammer. You can put this clip. All right, everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Justin for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Gabby Fisher for helping to coordinate this interview. Quick reminder, the Stacks Book Club pick for June is White Negroes When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation by Lauren Michelle Jackson. We'll be discussing the book on Wednesday, June 29th with David Dennis Jr. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, will you be sure to leave us a rating and a review? For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.